I know why the Bible calls us to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Your voices bring such peace and soothing to my soul. I thank you so much for singing to God. I cannot tell you what a blessing it is to prepare my heart to preach a sermon like this. So praise God for your voices. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with a, a passage that is truly overwhelming. It is too grand for us to preach, let alone read. And yet you've given it to us that we might know Christ. To know him in such a way that we will bow even now to worship him. So I ask that you be gracious with us this morning and simply show us Christ. Show us him as our creator. Show us him as our savior. And then have the right impact upon our souls by your spirit by causing us to follow him with all our life. We ask that you would do this, Lord, not only for the blessing of your church, but for your own glory. For his name's sake, he is worthy. Bless us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Good morning. The Apostle Paul commands Timothy to preach in season and out of season, and I am out of season this morning. I am fighting a really bad cold, and so my voice may not cooperate with me, so please be patient. Um, I find it somewhat ironic that I would be ill on the day that I'm going to try to preach some of the loftiest verses pertaining to Jesus Christ and all of sacred scripture. And maybe that's just God's way of humbling me, that in my weakness he might be proclaimed boldly. So by his grace you will have ears to hear a most extraordinary passage from the book of Colossians. If you do not have your Bibles open, please do so to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Last Monday, it is estimated that half of all Americans, 170 million people, went outside to watch the solar eclipse. With several of those millions traveling hundreds of miles to what is called the path of totality, to see a total eclipse of the sun. It was described as, quote, the most incredible thing I've ever seen a life-changing experience, spiritually profound, a 10 out of 10, nothing better. Nothing better. There were tears, gasps, silence, singing. One person even had a wedding in the middle of the eclipse. It was, for many, a worship experience. Now, I made sure to take in the incredible celestial event as well. I wanted to go out and see it in the context of my creator. It's his sun. And it's his moon. And he put them in place at the beginning of space and time to have the exact orbit they would have that we might witness his glory on Monday morning. Had all those who witnessed the earth in the late morning go from darkness back to light, had all those 170 million people known the true light of the world, 
the one who spoke the sun and the moon and all things into creation, then this morning our churches would be full because they'd want to hear from the one who created all that is seen and unseen, including the eclipse that held them so captivated for an hour. This morning, by God's grace, I want to do something very simple. I want to bring to you a passage of Scripture that describes the creator of that eclipse. I want to bring to you a passage of Scripture that rightly elevates Jesus Christ as our creator and as our savior. And by his grace, inspire you to worship the creator and not the creation. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul started off with a two-part prayer. We looked at him thanking God for the love and the hope and the faith that he had cultivated in the church at Colossae. And then he thanked God and he prayed that God would fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will, that they might and the church might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then the apostle takes six verses to reveal the infinite worthiness of Jesus Christ, his unmatched glory and majesty. Verses 15 through 20 in Colossians chapter 1 are probably some of the most theologically dense verses in all of sacred scripture pertaining to the person of Jesus Christ. They are Christological gems. It is a creed of sorts, well worth memorizing and not too long that you might remind yourself daily of the one to whom you have submitted and surrendered your life. In verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul rightly elevates Jesus Christ as creator of all that is seen and unseen because he is. And then in verses 18 through 20, he rightly magnifies the name of Christ as savior of his church because he is. And so I'd like to look at both revelations this morning. Jesus as creator and Jesus as savior. And in so doing, give you a glimpse of the God-man behind the eclipse. Give you an understanding of his magnitude and his majesty and his power that we might be humbled this morning and leave in adoration and thanksgiving. Will you listen? Okay. So I want you to listen with all your might. I want you to hear God speak that you might see Christ clearly. Because if you do, you will be forever changed. Jesus, the creator, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see the magnitude of this passage. It is utterly overwhelming. And if you hear it rightly by the Spirit of God, you should rightly be overwhelmed at this moment. Paul says he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. It is the highest standing, the greatest magnitude that the Apostle Paul can ascribe to the person, Jesus Christ. Man was created in the image of God. But here, Paul says Jesus is the image of God. God, the invisible God, made visible through the Son. It's why Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
And then Paul establishes this God-man's relationship to all creation as the firstborn of all creation. Not first created, but firstborn. And it is a statement that has caused much confusion in the history of the church. It does not mean that Jesus was born. It does not mean that he was created. It means that he has the highest ranking, the highest standing, the greatest honor above all creation. Why? Because he is to be created. He is the creator. All things were created by him and for him and sustained through him. And therefore he is deserving of all worship and all honor and all glory by all things. All things exist because of him. And we know from John 1, 2 that without him nothing would come or be in existence. He is the uncreated creator of all that is seen and unseen. That's worth at least one amen. Thank you. Our view of creation as finite beings bound by space and time is so limited. Paul reveals Jesus here as not only the creator of what we can see, and all that we can see is so little, but he is also the creator of that which we cannot see. The physical, the spiritual, the seen, the unseen, past, present, and future, not just on earth, but also in heaven. Not just the things that we can see with our eyes, but all that we cannot see. He says, Jesus Christ created them all. In verse 16, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that saying is a bit cryptic, but he's talking about angels. He's talking about angels of various rank and position, angels of such power and such magnitude that if one were to appear right now in our presence, we would all fall down dead like dead men. And Paul is saying, and Christ created them too, by the way. In other words, the Apostle Paul establishes unequivocally the absolute supremacy of the God-man, Jesus Christ, as creator. Your origin, your parents' origin, the earth, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the microscopic organisms that are at the very bottom of the ocean, Jesus Christ made All that you see, and most of what you do not see, came into existence by him. By him. Now, the primary implication of this truth is utterly staggering. If all things were created by Jesus, then he owns all things and all people absolutely. He is the owner of the creation. The psalmist was being literal when he said in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his. We are all his. Not just his church, but all creation. Now, as an American, you may find that thought repulsive. That you are owned by someone. That someone created you. And therefore, has the right to determine your life. But the Bible teaches clearly that we do belong to Jesus. We may think ourselves owners, especially in relation to other people. We own cars, we own homes, we own animals. If I were to just get in your car right now and drive away, you would say that I was stealing, and that's right. Temporally speaking, and in relationship to other people, you own that car. But in relationship to God, 
We own absolutely nothing. In relationship to God, God is the owner, and we are stewards of all that he has provided. In relationship to God, Christ is our creator, and therefore we are, this is the hardest thing for us to hear, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. He is our master. And that means all the things that we have belong to him. Your entire life belongs to him. And so for those of you who still live by the tithe, those of you who said, I give 10% of my money, 10% of my time, 10% of my resources to God, and keep all the 90% of all that you have to yourself, you are missing Jesus Christ as your creator. He owns it all. Everything. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, well, what is molded say to its molder, what have you, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? The answer, of course, is yes, yes, yes. The potter has absolute authority and complete right to do with the clay anything he so pleases. He is the maker. We are the creation. So let me ask you, does that rub you the wrong way? Or does that cause you to rejoice? When you hear that God is your creator and you are his creation, does it warm your heart and give you a deep desire to know him and follow him and live as he created you to live? If so, it's a mark of grace. It's a mark of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Or when you hear that, does it make your blood boil? Do you hate the thought that you are a slave to someone, that you have a master, that you own nothing, that you are a steward, subject to the will of your creator, that everything in your life, your career, your children, your possessions, your very breath belongs to him. If you find that offensive or difficult to swallow, I would encourage you to repent immediately because at the very heart of sin, now listen please, at the very heart of sin is a hatred of God being God. At the very heart of sin is a desire for man to be God instead of God being God. So my beloved, I pray that you would repent of this sin and not see yourself as an autonomous, self-determined, I will live my life as I see fit fool because it is utterly foolish. Come to Christ. He has the power to set you free from this delusion. He has the power to enable you to see truth. And that's what needs to happen. We need to see ourselves as the created beings that God made us, that we might come into a right relationship, that our flesh might give way to faith, and that our rebellion might give way to loving obedience to our creator. Now, if God is the creator of everything, and I believe that to be so because the Bible says so, then the question we must ask is, what was his purpose for creating? I mean, why would an all-sufficient, all-glorious, all-power, omniscient God create at all? Why would he do this? Paul actually gives us this answer. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 16b. He says, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. This is utterly extraordinary. Here in a single verse, your origin and your purpose is revealed. Two of the biggest questions that mankind has been asking for centuries. The same questions secular scientists have asked for decades and still have no answer. Where do we come from and why are we here is answered in one half of a single verse in the Bible. What a book. What a word. 
everything, without exception, finds its origin in Jesus Christ. And everything, without exception, finds its purpose in Jesus Christ. And that is to bring him glory. Romans eleven thirty six, Paul said it this way. For from him, speaking of Christ, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. What a truth. What a truth that our atheist and agnostic friends ignore or dismiss to their own demise. Without God as creator, there is no ultimate purpose for life or the universe. Without God as creator, it means that all of our goals and all of our absolutes become relative. Anything that you think is important or anything that you think stands true, someone else has equal right to say, no, it does not. Because there are no absolutes. There's no foundation upon which to build truth if there is no creator. You say, I want to put an end to the racial tension I see on the nightly news. Others say, I want to stir it up. You say, I I want to be a better steward of this planet. And I want to rightly guard the environment. Others say, we don't care. Let's pollute. You say... I want to fight for the right of the unborn child. Others say, we want to expand that right to all women everywhere. And without Jesus Christ as creator, there is no stand, there's no foundation, nothing eternal upon which you can say, yes, this is right, and yes, this is wrong. It's all arbitrary, and it's all relative. And it means that the only meaning in your life is that which you randomly ascribe meaning to. But... If God did, in fact, create all that is seen and unseen through Jesus Christ, then the exact opposite is true. Instead of everything being meaningless, every single thing has purpose. How do we know that? Because everything that God does is purposeful. Isaiah 46.10, God said, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God does nothing haphazardly, nothing arbitrarily, nothing whimsically. Everything God does, he does for a purpose. You say, well, what is that purpose? What is it? What is the great grand purpose of God? It is singular. It is to fill the earth and the universe with his glory. Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be, here's the purpose, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The great purpose of God creating all the seen and unseen is to magnify his glory. Now be very careful. It's not to increase his glory. He is infinitely glorious in who he is. He was, is, and always will be the infinitely glorious God. And so we can't add to his glory. She says, well, then why did he create? Because he wants to share it. He wants to give it. He wants to reveal it to all creation, that, they, that we might rejoice and revel in it and reflect it back to him. So the Apostle Paul here, in a few verses, reveals Jesus Christ as the creator who created for his own glory. But there's something else here that is so compelling. Look at verse 17. He reveals Jesus Christ as the sustainer, the creator for his glory who sustains his creation. Verse 17. And he is before, he, Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a breathtaking verse. All things are dependent upon Jesus Christ. All things. 
all people, even those who are unsaved, all angels, even those that are fallen, we may attempt to live independent lives. We may try, but every creature not only finds its origin and purpose in Jesus Christ, but its daily, moment-by-moment sustenance. Every moment of every day, every created creature, every created thing, from the galaxies that are near and far to the atoms that move and complete us, Jesus sustains. He holds them together. And if Jesus is not only our creator but our sustainer, that means, my beloved, whether we want to believe it or not, and it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it is still true, you are completely and totally dependent upon God every moment of every day for everything. I love how John Piper put this. Listen to this. If God should ever cease to address your body and soul with the command, be, you would cease to be. The only barrier between you and nothingness is the word of God. And then he wrote this. Have we ever begun to plumb the depths of the saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? We have not. Because every moment of every day, the word of God sustains us. It sustains the universe. That means every heartbeat, every breath, every bite of food, every hour of sleep, your very atomic structure melts away if not for Christ. The cosmos goes to chaos if not for Christ's sustaining power. Hebrews 1.3 says Christ reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. Listen to this. Upholding the universe by his word of power. Upholding the universe. Christ holds everything, sustains everything in his mighty hand. During World War II and throughout the Cold War, several military and espionage agencies had their agents carry something called a cyanide pill. You've probably heard of this. The spy pill, the L pill, the death pill. It was given to them so that they were caught, they could take it instead of being tortured to death or giving up valuable information. The pill, once digested, inhibits cellular respiration. You say, I don't know what that means. It prevents the body from oxidizing food to produce energy. The person who takes it is rendered unconscious in a matter of minutes. And then the brain dies because it is deprived of oxygen. It is a catastrophic and immediate death. Without Jesus Christ sustaining the universe every moment of every day, all creation would suffer a similar catastrophic fate. It would be a cosmic cyanide pill if he said enough. But he doesn't. My beloved, this is a call to nothing less than a life of total humility. Complete and total humility. A reorientation of the Western mind from being independent to dependent. Totally dependent upon God. We must as the Bible calls us, as Jesus said, come to God as little children, knowing that our Father cares for us and sustains us every moment of every day. We must come to him and ask him, as Jesus instructed in Matthew 6, give us, Father, this day our daily bread, for you sustain us. 
Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, for you sustain us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because you sustain us. Oh my goodness, how far we have strayed from this moment by moment understanding of God sustaining us. How far we have strayed. How independent we want to be. So my beloved, if everything belongs to God, everything, and we are called to be stewards of what God has given, then we must ask ourselves of our lives, of our work, of every action, of every relationship, of every purchase, does this accomplish the purchase of the purpose of my owner? In all things, we must ask that question. Is how I am living, is what I am doing, accomplishing the great purpose of the one who made me? And now that we know what that purpose is, to bring him honor and glory in all that we do, we must ask ourselves, does my life, my work, my relationship, my use of time magnify God's glory? Because that's why we're here. Is God pleased with what you read? Is God pleased with what you watch? Is God pleased with your dress? Is he pleased with your relationships? Is he pleased with your work and how you work? Does your life reflect a total dependence upon God to sustain you in every way for everything? Are you grateful? Are you humble? Do you live as though you are totally dependent upon him? If God's purpose for every creature was to magnify and display his glory here on earth, then every creature ought to strive with all their might to bring him honor and glory. In this description, this three-verse description of Jesus Christ as creator, the entire redemptive plan of God is revealed. Through his beloved son, God created out of nothing all that is seen and unseen. Everything exists because he's purposed it to be so. Everything belongs to him. And therefore he is pleased to magnify his glory in his creation. And what pleases God most is filling the earth with his glory. Calling every creature to participate in the magnification of his infinite value and his infinite worth. Now and forever. And he calls us to do that. By living as created beings for his glory that he sustains moment by moment every day. It's simple, isn't it? We bring him honor and glory when we live as created beings, not self-sustaining autonomous individuals. We bring him honor and glory when we live for the purpose of glorifying his name in all that we do. And we live, we bring him honor and glory when we live as though he sustains us every moment of every day because he does. In other words, we bring him honor and glory when we live in light of truth, in light of who he is and who we are. And why we're here. But a, a pause upon this reflection reveals that this is not how we live. This is not. Most of us live as non-created, self-sustaining, autonomous people. Most of us flip our nose at God from birth. And we seek to be our own gods and our own lords. We refuse to believe that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That he literally 
created everything, sustains everything for his own glory. We refuse to hear and submit to his word, and instead we choose to detach ourselves from our origin and from our purpose. And what do we do instead? We worship solar eclipses. We worship our money. We worship our marriage. We worship our job or our children or our hobbies. Paul was right. Claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and crafty things. We worship the creation instead of the creator. Why is it that we don't find by our nature the Son of God so amazing? Why are we not amazed by these words? Why are you not enthralled with this sermon? You say, well, it's your, pay, it's your preaching. Maybe, but listen to the words of God. Why are we not equally captivated to these words as we were on Monday with the solar eclipse? The Son of God is infinitely more amazing than a thousand solar eclipses. So how do we get there? How do we see Christ clearly? And have this right relationship. Not one of rebellion, but of longing, loving submission. How do we go through our lives as created beings, living for God's glory, sustained every moment by Him, and knowing that and living like that? How do we do that? Point number two, Jesus is Savior. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. <clears throat> in verses 15 through 17, the apostle rightly magnifies Jesus Christ as creator. And then here in verses 18 through 20, we see this relationship now redefined as Jesus Christ, Savior, head, firstborn from the dead over his church. It's an extraordinary statement that the creator of all that is seen and unseen is now put into a loving, intimate relationship with those he has redeemed. Their head, all those that God has rescued from the darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. He is the head of the church, not the world. He is the firstborn among the dead, and therefore he is the first to be made alive. Only the church enjoys this special relationship because only the church has the son as the head, the firstborn from the dead, because only the church has been made, made alive by God and brought into the kingdom of the living. In relation to the created order, Jesus is revealed in verse 15, look with me again, the firstborn of all creation, elevating the supremacy of his rank and honor above all that is seen and unseen. Here, Paul uses almost an identical phrase, but he changes one word. Instead of creation, he says the dead, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so why? What's the change? It also magnifies Jesus Christ, but not in relation to the creation, but in relationship to his church. That he is the firstborn from the dead reveals him to be the first who rises among many. And it reveals this, that he is not only 
supreme and has authority over all that is seen and unseen, but he is also supreme and has authority over death and its destructive power. Remember, my beloved, you were created to bring God glory by living, not dying, living in an intimate, personal relationship with your creator now and forever. But as a result of sin, both original and that which we freely exercise of our own accord, the creation embraced death instead of life. Living our lives outside of the headship of Jesus Christ. Outside of his love, outside of his protection, outside of his provision. But by God's grace, God purposed not only to magnify his glory in all creation, but God purposed before the foundations of the world to magnify his name in a people, a holy people, a royal priesthood that he was going to set apart to bring himself honor and glory. That people is the church. And so God the Father did this work by sending Christ, the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega, the preeminent one, who is not, over, not only surpasses all creatures in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, but has all power, all power over life and death. And it's only through the preeminent one that man has any hope of being saved from our current state of rebellion and death. Because only in Christ, look at verse 19, only in Christ was God pleased for the fullness of himself to dwell only through Christ is God the Father pleased, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. And that means with the fullness of God the Father dwelling in the God-man, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has the power to grant life to dead sinners. No domain, no power, no ruler, not even Satan, has the power to thwart the will of God. In saving many. Nothing is outside of his absolute supreme authority. And because God is sovereign and God does what pleases him most, God was pleased that all his power and majesty and glory dwell in the God-man Jesus Christ. And he was pleased to make Jesus the head of his church so that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, many would follow through his ascension, we are told that he would lead a host of captives with him. That's his bride. That's the church. That's you. God the Father was pleased through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to reconcile all things to himself in heaven and on earth through the blood of the cross. And here in verse 20, look at it with me again. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the consummation of the work of the God-man. This is how Jesus would fill the earth with the glory of God. To reconcile not just the church, but all things in heaven and on earth. His broken creation, the dispensing of his justice, the saving of sinners... All through, listen, all accomplished through the spilling of the blood at Calvary. You say, well, how is that so? The whole creation, we're told in Romans 8.22, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth to this very hour. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, 
God the Father promises to bring healing to the land and to the seas, to the air and to the water, to the plants and to the animals and to the creatures that have been subject to the consequences of our sin. And there's much healing necessary. You only need to look outside to see that. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God promises to bring reconciliation to the good angels. You say, well, what kind of reconciliation do they need? No longer will they be required to battle against the demonic forces to secure the redemption of God's elect. They will be at peace. There will be no more war. There will be rest for the angels who fight on your behalf. Through the cross of Christ, God will reconcile the debt owed to him by Satan and all the demons. By requiring of them an eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth in the eternal lake of fire. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God will require the same of all men and all women who refuse to be saved. Who refuse to recognize and submit to Jesus Christ as God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And through the cross, God will accomplish his most glorious work of all. Through the cross of Christ, God will, for his own glory, save a people through that same sinless blood of the Savior. He'll restore the earth. He will give rest to the angels. He will bring judgment upon the demons, eternal condemnation upon all men who refuse to be saved. And then, in his greatest work, he will pardon sinners like us. The blood of Christ will remove the guilt that we carry as a result of our own sins. The shed blood of our Savior, God, will put the just wrath upon Christ that we might not have it. He will take the consequences of our sin and put it upon Christ in his body upon the cross that we might be forgiven and set free and then receive the righteousness and glory of Christ himself. And he'll do all that. He'll make you a church, a holy people. He does all that for his own glory. Isaiah 43. God said, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for what purpose? For my glory. That's why you're here. That's why you're redeemed. That's why I pray you've gathered this morning to worship God, because you were created and redeemed by the blood of Christ to bring him honor and glory. What love God has revealed in the shed blood of his son. What a calling for all mankind to repent and believe and be saved from our rebellious, delusional states. What a calling for all mankind to know we are the created being, not the creator. What a, what a calling to let all mankind know that every single person's purpose is to magnify the glory of God, his goodness, his honor, his majesty. How glorious if all mankind at this moment would understand that God sustains their very breath that holds them together. This is the hope that is offered to you in Christ. Not only knowing that you are created, 
for the glory of God and sustained by him every moment of every day, but you were saved by Christ, by his blood, to glorify him forever in his presence. My beloved, this passage tells us our origin is from God. Our purpose is his glory. And your end, your destiny is his presence if you know Christ. If you know Christ. You have heard this morning from some of the deepest, richest verses in the Bible teaching to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Creator. Savior. You stand before God this morning fully culpable for your rejection or acceptance of these eternal truths. Your belief in them or rejection of them does not change them. Christ is the creator. You were created for his glory. He sustains you every moment of every day and he desires you to repent and believe and be saved that you might be sustained in his presence in glory forever. That is absolutely, objectively true, independent of what you believe. But what you believe determines your eternity. So let's listen to Isaiah again. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, listen, my beloved. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. By his grace this morning, if you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, see yourself as you truly are, a created being, made for his glory, sustained by his power. Repent and believe of your sins and receive the grace that comes from the blood of Christ that you might have in eternity with him. If you know him already and your heart has rejoiced over these verses of hearing a sinful man like me talk about your creator and your savior, if you know him, then strive to live as someone created for his glory. Strive to live as a created being knowing that you own nothing and you're stewards of everything. Strive to live for the purpose in which you were made to bring him honor and glory in all that you do, all that you think, and all that you say. Strive to be a thankful, humble person who knows that every moment of every day you are sustained by God. Above all else, hear these words. Understand them in the depth of your heart that you might fall down and worship Christ. If these verses are to do anything for us, they are to cause us to stop and realize we are not God. Jesus Christ is God. We are not the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator. We are not saviors. Christ is the savior. And our purpose here is not to glorify ourselves. It is to glorify him and to fall down and worship him. He is infinitely, infinitely, infinitely more glorious than any solar eclipse you'll ever lay your eyes upon. If we do not see that clearly, then we do not see Christ clearly. I pray by his grace 
we will this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I can see by the eyes of many that this passage did not have the right impact that you intended upon the heart and mind. Many eyes still weary. Many eyes still not absorbing the magnitude of this truth of Christ, Creator, Christ, Savior. Father, please lift the veil. When your son died upon the cross, the veil that kept us out from the holiest of holies was torn in two. Tear the veil now, please. We want to see Christ as he really is. We want him being our creator and our sustainer. We want to know that our being created for the purpose of bringing him honor and glory is real and impact our entire lives. Please, Father. Please, we ask that you would do this by your grace, through your spirit. Our flesh cannot comprehend the magnitude of these truths. You must reveal yourself. Do so. Do so that we will hear and we will worship. That we will hear and understand and live our lives following Christ, running after Christ. I ask that you would do this, Lord, because this will, in fact, magnify your glory. Do it for yourself. Do it for Christ's name. Do it for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Be pleased, Father, to magnify your name here in this church. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.